Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So thank you, uh, Lisa, for the muffins. True, true Jewish community is about eating, right? Which is, which is, believe it or not, part of what we're dealing with in the book of Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus. We're dealing with what to us, and when we talk about sacrifice and other rituals, right now we're talking about sacrifice in this week's Parsha. When we talk about it, we you know tend to focus on the killing part. Really, the focus would have been, for a lot of Israelite offerings, would have been on the eating part. So it was... It was the Israelite who ate. It was the priests who ate, the Levites. Uh, remember, we're talking about when sacrificing an animal. If, then that means any part that was to be eaten by the celebrant. <clears throat> Often it was a big part. So you fed a lot of people with that offering, right? So it was, it was not an isolated individual act. It was a communal act. And it had a lot to do um, with early Israelite tradition having grown out of a, a tradition that understood that you, you partook with the gods of a sacred meal. So Israelites understood that they were actually offering, but, but also eating with the divine. So that this was a meal, because what happens at meals? When we take a meal together, you, sh- you share the food. What else happens in that experience? You come together. Okay, you come together. There's nourishment, right? And nourishment is very much connected to life. So we tend to focus on the death aspect of sacrifice. I'm not saying that isn't important. I think, uh, I don't know if I'm going to say more important, but just as important is all of the ways that sacrifice was actually about connecting to life. Those of us who eat meat, I'm very aware when I eat meat that it is some of the most nourishing in terms of like immediate, you know, protein, immediate, you know, stuff that we get. You have to eat a lot of vegetables, how many beans you have to eat to have usable protein, right? So yes, there's protein in beans. Yes, it's healthy. It's lovely. <laughs> um, you have to consume vast amounts of it to have that same protein hit. And in the ancient world, they, you know, they didn't eat meat every day. It was a special occasion because you were, you were killing an animal. It's expensive. Meat was extraordinarily expensive. Thank you, Adam. Um, and if we paid now the cost of what it is to keep a cow thank you alive and then what it is to slaughter it and process it we wouldn't eat meat very often because we wouldn't be able to afford it right if we really paid what it costs we don't that industry is subsidized in all kinds of ways um so 
both the eating, the communal meal, the celebrant was understanding themselves as, as I said, eating with the divine, along with their whole clan that they would have fed. They would have fed, as we said, the priests and the Levites with this. And what is the most effective part? What affects change in sacrifice? We're going we're gonna to look at two things. Let's, let's talk about the one we know that we've talked about a lot. What affects change? Um, from when you sacrifice an animal, what's, what's the agent at work? Fire. So fire is the way that it becomes an offering. Blood? Blood. Right? Blood is the important, one of the important elements. So, to, Carol, will you check the thing? People are freezing. I know everybody's like shivering and sitting on top of each other. And <laughs> so, so we have the. Uh, we're going to just quickly review. We have the Mishkan, right? Here we have the Holy of Holies. We have the altar, the Mizbeach. Or actually, that wouldn't have been the Mizbeach, Amy. It can't be in the tent. The Mizbeach, right? Out here. So the smoke turns the offering, I mean, turns the sacrifice into an offering to the divine. What's around the Mishkan? What's around the tabernacle? Huh? Tents. Right? The Israelites. So when we, let's remind ourselves of the system. When an Israelite sins, what happens? It contaminates the camp. Correct. When an Israelite sins, that causes contamination. And when the contam- where's the contamination going to go? The contamination is drawn to the sacred. If you get enough contamination, what can't happen? God can't be there. Correct. God is all holiness. So if you get enough contamination, God can't be there. God can't rest. In the, in the, God can't dwell in the Mishkan in the midst of the people if there's so much contamination that the holy, the holy can't be in the same place as the dross of sin. They are, we've talked about it before, magnets. You know, when you put the magnets, I forget which way, um, and they repel. That's exactly what this contamination repels holiness. It, and God is all holiness. And so that it repels the divine. So we don't, we don't have to agree with this. We don't have to like it. We don't have to whatever. We need to understand this if we're going to understand these texts. Otherwise, it's like, what? Right? Then it's really ridiculous. So how do you deal with contamination? The celebrant... Brings an animal. <laughs> yes, beautiful. 
<laughs> Don't quit your day job, right? Um, and so when it's brought to the altar, when this animal is brought to the altar, its blood is dashed by the priest, right? On the altar. That act cleanses the space of contamination. This life force washes away the contamination of sin, allowing the divine presence to be concentrated and rest in the Mishkan. Um, interesting question. So, yes and no. The divine presence rests here. There was a regular cycle of ritual that we're going to look at that assured that that presence could be there. Okay. When terrible things happen, it was assumed that there was so much contamination that it has repelled the divine. This, this is a small way of understanding how they explained the destruction of the temple. Right? The destruction of the first temple. How could that happen? If Yahweh is the biggest, most powerful force in the neighborhood... How could God's house be destroyed by an enemy and their God? How could that happen? The only explanation, if God is all-powerful and all-good, the only explanation is that human sin, there was too much contamination, and the divine could no longer like rest with Israel, and they were destroyed. And in, in ancient Israel, it not only contaminates the Mishkan, but later, when they are in the land of Israel, it was understood, sin was understood to contaminate the ground. And too much wrongdoing meant you would be spat out, which is how they explain the exile. Right? That too much wrongdoing meant that the earth, the ground itself could not tolerate the Israelite presence anymore and spit them out. If, Rabbi, was there some mechanism which determined whether sin needed to be expunged here, or was it automatic that, that every time there was a ceremony, blood, they just assumed there was sin and blood was offered? I'm not sure I understand how the links connect here. Right. So that's, it's a good question. So there's, there's a couple of different kinds of offerings. There's not just the sin offering. There is a offering... The shlamim, so the the offering of shalom, right? So uh, some people translate it as a um, goodwill offering. I like better the translation by some scholars that call it um, a, oh, an offering of greeting, right? So that you're going to be with the divine. You just want to be with the divine and offer something, out of a sense of 
you know, good things. You just want to hang out. Um, so there, so there's more than just, so the answer is there's more times that there's sacrifice than just sin. But every time there's sin and there's an offering, it is understood, yes, to be effective. When somebody determines that there's sin in an offering, is needed or is it? Ah, ha, 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 ha. So that is part of what we're going to look at today, right? When, when, when do you bring an offering? How do you know? If God is all-powerful, what you just said is there's sin. It, like, forces God out of there. So, so that's not about choice. That's about something being antithetical to something else. So when we say power, you know, we think, okay, well, that may, so, so Superman may be all powerful here, but kryptonite just, it just, just the, it just is that where there is contamination, the holy cannot abide. It can't. So it's just an accepted well, part of... I guess it, it could if it wanted to. Well, that, that is well, an interesting is, question. Yeah, this, this, I mean, it gets down to the question of to what extent is God all-powerful and to what extent do we also control the presence of God in the world? So it's a very good question. Um, and I think it's a tension that remains present in Israelite religion mm-hmm. and remains very present with us today. Right. So on the one hand, people think of God Almighty. And on the other, don't we believe that that we in some way really do contribute to whether or not the divine is expressed in our communities, in our relationships, in our country? (laughs) It's it's very, very true. It's um, because it's the opposite of truth. Negative, it feeds that negativity feeds negativity. So what? So what are you saying? So I'm saying that to have God present, and you say how God. And I don't know how to say this. You're saying if God repels, if negative repels, then positive brings. Right. Is that what you're? Yeah. Exactly. So. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you say more that God chooses not to be in any other with sin? So, like God gives free will. we believe there's free will. God has chosen to give free will to man, and then chooses what happens as far as free will is concerned. Also, it doesn't seem that the biblical system understands this as choice. <laughs> we we can certainly go there. Sure. Um, it seems that it is more part of the known universe that where there is damage between people or against the sancta, the, the holy can't, can't be there. Um, I, I don't know how meaningful a distinction it is, you know, that chooses or can't, I, I don't know. Um, but it's kind of like matter and antimatter, you know, it is how I think about it. Um, as a science fiction fan, like, it works for me that, like, that can't happen. Like, that, it just can't. Because that's how the universe works, um, but chooses. Okay, we can we can hold that as an option that maybe the divine chooses not to be where there is sin. Um, all right. So so this is the basic premise of any offering that we're talking about as regarding atonement. 
right? But there are other, there are, as we said, other functions of offerings. So what we're going to look at today um, also is a uh, piece from Moshe Halbertal's work on sacrifice. Um, and looking at a different element than we've looked at ever before together of what sacrifice uh, is about. But let's read a little bit about um, there the three different kinds of, not offerings, but the three different kinds of atonement offerings. All right, so let's start at verse 3. If it, is an, if it is the anointed priest who has incurred guilt, so that blame falls upon the people, he shall offer for the sin of which he is guilty a bull of the herd without blemish as a purification offering to the Lord. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand upon the head of the bull. The bull should be slaughtered before the Lord and the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it into the tent of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the shrine. The priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of aromatic incense, which is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And all the rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay. So, and and I should, to get to David's point, um, it's interesting if we look at the sentence before that, when a person unwittingly incurs guilt in regard to any of God's commandments about things not to be done and does one of them. So it's kind of tortured, tortured language. But so unwittingly, unintentional, unintentional from the Hebrew word shagag to err, right? He does it beshogeg. In error, and this is still a halachic term used today. That if you do something bishogeg, right? It's you didn't know. All right. So, if a person does something bishogeg uh, inadvertently, what? Why is that here? Well, there's a difference between intentionally doing something wrong and you didn't realize it. All right, so what, why doesn't it say in either case? Why does it have to say unwittingly? It sounds like it's done anyway. Hmm? It sounds like it's done anyway, whether it was unwittingly or on purpose. So wittingly is a very different it's going to be way more serious. Than it's, it's, it's way more serious, and the Book of Numbers tells us you it does this does not atone. Absolutely not. Is it, that, that's the one where if you do it wittingly, you've got to somebody, for example, you've got to go to them. Right. Don't so to me, go to this is that halachic principle that we get at Yom Kippur that the intent this was all for unintentional sin. You're in big trouble if it's intentional. Big trouble. So this is all for it's unintentional. You don't know you did it. Then you discover you did it. Or you assume that you have done something unintentionally. So Yom Kippur comes, right? Everyone offers from the high priest all the way down to the Israelite, right? Because 
It's assumed everybody has made a mistake. Unwittingly. All right. So even here, the very first category of sin offering is for the priest. For the priest. So, and it's not like, oh my gosh, if you find out the priest unwittingly sinned, he's fired. I love that. (laughs) Obviously for lots of reasons. But um, so the head of your whole ritual system is assumed to do things wrong, to sin. It's assumed. It is not, uh-oh, if it, it's found out that the Kohen Agadol, God forbid, did something. It's, it's put here like, here's, here's the list of how you take care of all this stuff, starting with the priest. It also says nobody's perfect. That, because that, there's the assumption that even if we try and do all the right stuff, that we unwittingly can do stuff. That's why I love it. Uh, That's exactly why I love it, Richard. But if 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 it is the priest who has committed the uh, unwitting sin, why does blame fall on the people? Well, it's not blame. Well, blame falls upon the people. Okay, so. <laughs> I hate English. So if it is, so what it's saying is that if, if the priest sins, the people are implicated. The consequences. The consequences include the people. Sure. Even if it's, if it's unwitting. Yes, Why if are I the people implicated if this if because sin is contaminating. Oh, it, okay. So, so it it contamin- okay. So if we use that language instead okay. of blame, okay. I, blame is like okay. I don't like so, that. All right. So that it's kind of like the the he's the, the carrier. The, the, the community can't the, the community can't be whole unless something is fixed. Correct. And if, the, and if the and if the priest, even if it's unwitting, does something that they shouldn't have done, it still contaminates the whole community. Correct. And since the priest is the one who represents the people before the divine to keep the conduit open, right, to keep everything flowing, then he's he's ineffective if he's instead contributing. Correct. He's he's blocking the flow. Exactly. Sarah? There's a wonderful expression in Yiddish that takes care of it. One is only a person. Right. That's right. That is a very Jewish way of looking at the world. Only a person. Right? So as opposed to other traditions that lift up, you know, you're supposed to try to be perfect. Right? And then when you slide into being a only a person, right right it's just a completely other way of looking at things. It's very Jewish to say, people are only people. Like, of course they're going to mess, right? We're only people. You made a point earlier this year that one of the major differences between Judaism and other religions is that the, the people really are the democracy. The priest is just the vessel here, and that would make this consistent with that. Correct. It's the people really would sin, and the priest is the communicating device or whatever to 
Correct. And because the priest is a person, the priest has to be careful to keep himself able to be the facilitator of the divine relationship with the people. But absolutely, the priests and the Levites are there to serve the people. God says to serve me. But what does that mean? To serve me by ensuring the relationship stays close. Assuring the divine can be close. What is close in Hebrew? Karov. 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 Tell me how you say sacrifice. Korban. Yes. Korban. Do you see these letters? Same letters. Korban. Offering. Actually, more the closer translation is victim. Right? The ritual victim. Um, the act of... of um, sacrifice of bringing an offering is an act of drawing close, drawing near, drawing the divine and drawing close to the divine. That's the point of sacrifice. That is the whole point of the system of offerings. So the, so the priests and the Levites have to be sure that they are able to be efficacious in bringing the people close to the divine and in making sure there's, there's ample space and conditions for the divine to be close to the people. In doing that, in taking on those responsibilities, not only are they not all that, right? They put themselves in danger. They are in danger all the time. Because if the sancta is breached or broached, they are the ones who are responsible. And it's on them. So they not only are there to serve the people, but they take on all the risk for the people. So the people don't have to. And it's very clear in Leviticus that that is their job to make sure that the boundaries and borders are protected. And if there's encroachment on the sancta, it's on the Levites. And they pay with their lives. Sacrifice is a very loaded word in English. Hundred percent. The, the way we use it, you know, I've sacrificed something for somebody else is kind of like the, the emphasis is on the giving up of something. Correct. Now, here's what's interesting that we're going to look at. Um, so, so that was starting with the priest. So we're starting at the individual level, right? Let's, let's turn to 13. It's the whole community of Israel that has erred if it is the whole community of Israel that has erred and the matter escapes the notice of the congregation so that they do any of the things which by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt, when the sin through which they incurred guilt becomes known, the congregation shall offer a bull of the herd as a purification offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. The elders of the community shall lay their hands upon the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull should be slaughtered before the Lord. All right, and then we're going to go through the same procedure, okay. right? Go to verse 22. In case it is a chieftain who incurs guilt by doing unwittingly any of the things by which the commandment of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt. All right, so now we've got, we've got the high priest starting at the top. Then we've got the people, the whole nation. And then we've got like a leader 
another a civil leader. The priest is the ritual leader. The nasi is a secular civil leader. So it's assumed they're going to mess up. And then 27... If any person from among the populace unwittingly incurs guilt by doing any of the things which by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and he realizes his guilt, or the sin of which he is guilty is brought to his knowledge, he shall bring a female goat without blemish as his offering for the sin which, of which he is guilty. Okay. And we're going to get the same procedure. What important part of the procedure is laying the hands on the head of the animal. Why? It's like a transference. Ah, a transference. A transference of what? I think it's the sin out of him or her into the animal. Yeah. Yeah, David says, yeah. (laughs) But given that people are just people, one gets the impression that they spent all their times parade all their time parading animals into the temple. Right. So it's a really, really good point. Um, there are some scholars who say, based on the offerings that we get listed and based on the frequency of what it would mean, that this can't have been a real system. That, that there's not enough animals or time. Or the priests would be running or just the back, back and forth all day, right? That like, right. there wouldn't there there wouldn't be enough animals or time to have this every day, mm-hmm. every week. I mean, I don't know about y'all. I find out once a week, twice a week that I screwed up and I didn't know it and I didn't mean it, but I get told you didn't call so and so, you know, like I, I, all the time, and so. Imagine how many bulls right. or she goats I'd be bringing, right? And so if you multiply that by a nation, it's supposed to be six hundred thousand or something. So there's there are many scholars who believe really not so much. Okay. Does any of this ritual come down today? Is it practiced in Israel now? So we don't have a temple and we don't have a priesthood. So the minute the the second temple was destroyed, this system went away. We, however, see remnants of it. What is the closest relationship we have to this? Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur, the ritual, we read the rituals of Yom Kippur on Yom Kippur. I, I don't know, but is when they do the thing with the chicken? Kippurus. Kippurus is very much a remnant of this system. Right, you, you swing the chicken over, you know, the children's heads, and then you snap its neck. That is absolutely tied to this, but w- most of us don't do that. Is, that, is, the, is the, the Christian concept of Christ? Could he be the when he says, "I sacrifice myself"? Hundred percent. Of course. Yes. Yes. Christianity is the reconstruction. Of this, 100%. That is exactly where they base, right, that he is the victim and and by his blood cleanses the people and atones for them. Absolutely, it's here. I mean, it's other places too. I don't want to say it originates here. It, it doesn't actually originate here. Uh, the idea is all over Greece and all over that area before 
Christianity. Right? The resurrected king is a motif in the area for a very long time. Right? So that that's pushing down from the north. The Jesus followers are pushing up from the south, from Israel and other places, and the two meet. The idea of the risen Christ and Jesus as a teacher who is wedded to this system, they they meet. And it's convenient that we have it too, right? You know, and many of his followers, of course, his first followers, many of them were Jews. So pagans who had the risen Christ idea, right, wed that to Jesus as the Christ. And so do Jews who know of sacrifice and who know of the blood of sacrifice atoning. And so then it becomes... In traditional, <laughs> yeah. in traditional rabbinic Judaism... That's exactly what it was. Isn't study of the sacrifices considered to be uh, the equivalent of doing them in, in the Orthodox? I mean, it is part of the daily service. All right, so I, I'm not sure. Let me think about how I want to answer that. But, but Bert brings up another point. The closest thing we have to this is services. Whenever there would have been an offering in the temple, there is a synagogue service. Not here, because Jews aren't wedded to this anymore, right, in that way. So in the morning, there was a sacrifice. You have a service, right? Shachri. When in the afternoon, it was mincha, time for the mincha offering. In the evening, there was the evening offering. You have mariv. You had an extra offering on Shabbos and holidays, musaf. Musaf literally means that which is added. Right? So we have a Musaf service. Still, if you go to services anywhere on Yontif, there's Shachrit and Musaf. Because that's what would have happened in the temple. There would have been offerings. So the rabbis substitute prayer for offerings, including atonement. Right? We have Vidui. We have the confession. So words replace animals. After the, second After the second temple's destroyed. So it was a complete rupture from what they knew. And it was a genius job of reconstruction that the rabbis did and sold it to the people. They sold it to the people, which, which gives some of us hope <laughs> that, that we can do it again, right? We're going to have to get creative and we're going to have to work hard like they did at making it relevant and meaningful and in the language and shape and symbolism you know, and, and actions of the time. Like we tend to think of like, oh, change, Jesus's been the same for, it has not. Priesthood and rabbis, hello. Well, they don't usually point to me when they say, see, Judaism has not changed in 3,000 years. Right, but they point... Like, folks love to point to lots of stuff and say, that is real Judaism. That is the original. Nuh-uh. This is the original. And it doesn't get any different. This system and rabbinic Judaism. They are barely related in some ways, right? And, I mean, I've said this before in here. If you go to the Catholic Church, there's a lot more of this at church than there is in rabbinic Judaism. 
because you still have the sacrifice and the sacrifice is still in effect. And it happens every time you kneel before the priest and receive the sacrament because you're eating with God. In that case, you're kind of eating God and eating with God, right? But it, but that's what it's about. It's this. You bring it, you, you eat the sacrifice in order to come close. And in this case, to be forgiven and have that washed away. That is still in effect in the Catholic Church. There's still a labor, like where you wash, right? And there's still anointing. There's all kinds of stuff from here going on in the church that we do not have in rabbinic Judaism because Judaism moved on. Judaism left the idea that a sacrifice atones, okay? So in leaving that idea, something else had to take its place, and it had to be, in a minute, David, had to be in the milieu of the people. Where were they exiled to after the first destruction? Babylonia. What was going on in Babylonia at the time of the exile? What was the style of engaging? The academy. Anybody who was being taken seriously in Babylonia was in the academy. And you sat on cushions on the floor in rows. And if you asked a really good question that stumped the teacher, you got to come up a row. (laughs) And so all of the best students were in the front. That That was the language of the people who had that experience. Most of them did not come back. They stayed there. So, okay, the temple was going on and they sent their dues to the temple. Right. Send your dues to the temple. So um, they, they kept supporting that system, but they were, they were like, okay, great, I'll send my money for a sacrifice to be brought and then my first fruit. Right. And, but meanwhile, what are they doing? Learning and arguing in the academy. So when the second temple falls, what's flourishing is a people who is connected to the temple and connected to those ideals and those values and those teachings and history, but they're doing the academy. And so rabbinic Judaism is the yeshiva. That's what it is. It's pilpul. It's arguing a point of law as a way to engage in love with that which is gone. Yes? So it, it was in the language of the people this new response after the utter destruction of this system. We are at that place again, my friends. Come here on a Friday night. A thousand families. How many people do you think are in that sanctuary? 20, mm-hmm. So it is clearly not the milieu of the people anymore. And this is happening across the country. It's not just here. It's, it's everywhere. It's happening, and it's happening fast. It's happening very, very quickly. And we are struggling to figure out how to respond. So do we want to make it attractive? Of course. Do we want people to come? Of course. It's not the primary connection for Jews anymore, services. And it's not going to be. So what is it? Well, we got to get to work. (laughs) What we're doing right now. Ah, So that is what many of us believe is where... The magic still is for people is engaging in meaningful conversation and meaningful dialogue around shared texts. Yeah. 
Elena definitely gets to sit right there on the floor, right there. We'll get her a pillow. Um, Because the very things that are motivating people not to come, you know, to organize times and services necessarily, are this, this is an antidote to a lot of that. Disconnection, alienation, alone, separate, right? Shallow, rushed, pushed, you know, doing multitasking, you know, like that, that the antidote is focusing and talking to one another with one another about things that are, right, deep, that are, it's about depth and to take our time. Well, really? <laughs> really? Sort of take our time. Mm-hmm. Right, David? Was the, I think was it so linked to the destruction of the second temple that it just means that there was no more system to changing a culture is really tough. I mean, they had no choice. They had no choice. The temple was gone. They were exiled. The Romans exiled the Jews. They're gone. No, I mean just the practice of the sacrifice. So they can do that anyway. Not without a temple and not without a priesthood. No, you can't. Absolutely not. This tells you no way, Jose. There was centralized worship. That was a political move. So that was gone. Yeah. Yes, they were. They were dispersed. Yeah. They didn't live in Israel anymore. Now they live everywhere. They're slaves. Or they're dead. Now, I'm just sort of curious why, even when they were dispersed, they didn't come together and say, our practice is to offer sacrifice for Because this says you can't do that. There's one, there's one, only only in one place in the whole world where you can do sacrifice. And that, so, now, now, David, right, now, to be fair, they could have said, well, the temple's gone, so we're each going to make a temple. They replaced it with services. That's right. Because so so on the one hand they had to because this says you can't you can't sacrifice anywhere else and it has to be the priests and blah 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 blah. They but the, but circular reasoning says they could also go well that doesn't hold anymore so we're going to make our own altar. Clearly, they had moved on already while the second temple was standing in Babylonia and in other places, there were flourishing Jewish communities who weren't so attached to the temple. They sent their check, they did their duty, but that had nothing to do with their daily lives. Was and sacrifice in no. Babylon? No, 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 only in the temple. So that probably was the predicate for saying we're just not going to do it because there's because they didn't, right, because they, they already had moved on. They already were engaged in another kind of meaningful activity. That's kind of my, so it wins, rabbinic Judaism wins by default. It was already a tension, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? There's already a tension between the rabbis and the priests, because the priests get their job by being born a priest, being born a Kohen. And rabbis are arguing, wait a minute, so it doesn't matter how you behave? You can do whatever you want, as long as you wash the right way before you go to make offerings. You're, you're the conduit for the divine and this people? Really? I've seen you in the tavern. <laughs> I've seen what you do, right, so when you're off duty. Really? So that tension is already there. And because there's a flourishing alternative to the temple, 
when the temple's destroyed, that's what becomes normative. That's what becomes rabbinic Judaism. And that is, that is, I believe, our charge now. Let's be sure, right, that we are doing enough alternatives and exploring them that should it not be the future of the Jewish people, you know, that services are, are the way they connect, let's be sure we're doing enough other things that this place thrives. You got your hand up. I had my hand up, but it was t- something totally irrelevant to this. There's nothing irrelevant to right. uh, The priest puts his hand on the uh, sacrificial animal and transfers all the sins and whatnot and brings goodness back again, right? Um, so th- let's talk about that. I'm not sure it's sin that's transferred. Laying on of the hands to the of the laying my hands on the head of the animal does a couple of things. A, it identifies the animal as mine. Okay, that's important. It's it has to belong to me, right? And if it belongs to me, now it can stand in for me. And it seems less that it's about transferring sin than it is to say. Let what should happen to me as I designate this stand-in, this stunt double, if I should fall, right? Let, let whatever I deserve happen to this that is mine, and it stands in for me so that I'm protected. Okay, then using it in the opposite way, uh, when the, a priest puts his hand on someone's head and he gives them a benediction, he brings goodness and good wishes to him. So, does that have anything to do with the sacrifice, or is it totally irrelevant? Yeah, no, that it doesn't relate in that sense to sacrifice, but the act itself may be related. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the putting the hands like states a strong connection. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm thinking: from the animal to the priest to the uh, person back to the priest, it becomes a circular thing of absolving and recreating goodness. I mean, yes. left in left field, but yes. that was what came to my mind. Yes, so the laying on of hands can work several ways on the head, right? There's there's different functions. My grandfather used to sure. bench. Right, bench. Um, but remember, the priest wouldn't have been in that business. That was nothing to do with what they did. Okay. They did it like this. For everyone. For everyone. Right? So they put their hands in the position and blessed the people. But again, I think they're related, but it's not so much the priest. It's more kind of that that action of claiming. Yes? Is there any part uh, when they lay their hands on the animal of it being a kindness to try to calm the animal down? Because the animal is slaughtered? Look, is there some way that that evolves? Possibly. They, don't know. All right. One more, and then we're going to... help when you were... I think when you were talking about, yes, they weren't connected, but they sent their money, they sent their money. You know, that's how the temple feels. With, you know, with all respect, that's how most people feel, I think, that when I look at a law member list of people I haven't seen in 15 years mm-hmm. here, whatever... 18 years ago when I joined, that they're just thinking, well, I want to send my money. I want to make sure it's still here, mm-hmm. that I'm not connected. But right. So that's the, uh, right. the money makes them feel connected. And um, 
and that's true, right? That, you know, I, it's not what I do, you know, but I'll, I'll send my check. We'll take it. And we appreciate it. We'll take it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we hope that enough loyalty remains to support this place, right, as we engage with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's the same thing. It's absolutely the same thing. Um, all right. So go go to the, the last page of your packet, and you will see a piece by Rabbi Howard Cohen. So in that middle paragraph, about three sentences, uh, three lines down, the second sentence first starts first. First, individuals need mechanisms, ritual which allow for expiation of wrongful acts. And we get the quote of Leviticus 4.2 that we read. Second, we are reminded that there is a social or communal level of culpability when wrongful acts occur. And as such, there is a need for communal expiation as well. And we read that. Finally, we are reminded the conclusion of this week's reading, which is where I was going, perhaps the hardest lesson for us to integrate. When a person commits a trespass against God by dealing deceitfully with his fellow human being, he shall bring to the priest as penalty to God a guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven for whatever he may have done to draw blame thereby. In summary, this week's selection begins three important discussions decidedly relevant to us today. The first deals with our lack of rituals or mechanisms for allowing us to resolve and then let go of wrongful acts. Second is our society's lack of communal rituals for addressing wrongful acts for which we as a community are guilty. And finally, our ability both as individuals and as a society to forgive transgressors. The book of Leviticus offers us one paradigm. Our ancient ancestors, the Talmudic sages, transformed the deep wisdom of Leviticus into another paradigm, rabbinic Judaism. Now it is time for us to glean the wisdom of Leviticus and forge a new and meaningful paradigm for ourselves. I think this is absolutely critical. We have very few mechanisms, rituals anymore for individual wrongdoing and how to let go of that. And I'm not in any way being critical when I say what I'm about to say. I read it here in the book on sacrifice. What do we do? We go to a psychotherapist. What do we do? We unload the secret of the privacy of sin that we've come to realize or the burden of that. And by sharing it with somebody else, there's a mechanism for us to feel like, okay, I, I, I've, I've unloaded something from me, right? In sharing it. Now someone else carries it. An innocent other party. Someone not involved. This is why it's so powerful, I think. And that's what he talks about in this book. The victim has to be innocent. They can't be implicated or involved in any way. That's what makes the transference work. Right? And we use that language with therapists. Transference. I transfer stuff to you you who have not, I can get mad at you and yell at you as the therapist because I transfer a whole bunch of stuff onto you that then allows me the freedom to 
act out what I need to act out, but you are in no way involved or implicated. That is powerful medicine. And I can come back next week and do it again. And I can come back next week and do it again. Absolutely. If I can afford it. That's exactly right. It's confession. hundred percent. But the, but the, I think the difficulty that, that you have is that this new methodology works at the individual level. And what Leviticus is talking about is not just the stuff that you do at the individual level, but what do you do as a community? What do you do as a nation? Exactly. What do you do about the leaders? And I think the transference that we're talking about in therapy works to some extent. I don't feel like people leave therapy necessarily feeling like they have affected atonement. Right. At, right. So at, at, best, at best, they have the ability to move on and to let go. Correct. But where do we get any more a sense that if I do X, I am forgiven? And now I'm not talking about to the person, right? I, I unwittingly do something, right? So I, I didn't even do it on purpose. I can say I'm sorry, Reuben and Blanche. I'm sorry I didn't call you sooner, right? I should have called right away. Okay, they say, Rabbi, we love you, no problem, right? But what do I, where do we put, where do we really feel for, like, where do we get to, what's the mechanism whereby we can really own that we're still carrying something and, and need it to be dissipated? Where do we get that? And where do we get it as a community, I look, and I'm so serious, and I hate to keep coming back to it, but I look at these elections, and I think we as a society need a serious ritual of cleansing. What is going on? What is going on? Really? Really? I, I just, I, and you, or I think back to, you know, the, the war in Iraq. You know, we, we, where do we have a communal mechanism to say we screwed up? Where were we? We were asleep at the wheel. We can blame whoever made the decisions, but did, did we do our job? No. Did the media, did we ask the media, where's the beef? No. Right? I mean, where, where is there a mechanism? And we don't have it. We don't have it. And I think... Whatever we want to say about the sacrificial system, whatever we want to say about how bizarre or cruel or whatever or antiquated, fine. That's, that's great. Meanwhile, there were some things it affected that I worry that we're not working hard enough to figure out how to reconstruct it. Like, then what comes in its place? Yom Kippur is extraordinary for me because of this. Everyone's there, a lot of people are in white. Everyone's hungry. Everyone's cranky. Everyone's at four o'clock falling out of their seats. That's gorgeous. Because that means we're coming together to say out loud, we take responsibility for the fact that we're killing the planet. The, the inequity of the distribution of resources. That there are children sleeping in cars. If they're lucky, because the car gets towed, and now where do they sleep? Seriously, like Yom Kippur is where I feel like we finally do that. And it's once a year. Is it enough? I don't know.
All right. Turn over to page 10. Always before we've really focused on the the cleansing aspect of of sacrifice. There's some nuances that I just want to bring into our repertoire as we go into Leviticus this year. One is the difference in Hebrew between matana and mincha. When I give a matana, when I give a present, you accept it, right? The, the language is I give it, latate, to give. Matana, a gift. That's equals, right? Because if I give Today, Lisa brought me a very lovely gift to take on the plane when I go to APAC, right? There was no doubt in Lisa's mind, I hope, that I wasn't going to, ex- that I was going to accept that gift and joyfully, right? Or, or if I didn't feel it, I was going to pretend, right? But no, I'm serious, right? That, that if you give a gift to somebody, they're going to at least put on, even if it's a horrible white elephant gift, you know, that you really think was going to look great on them, they're going to smile and say thank you and accept it with grace. Yes? Not so with a superior. If I offer something to a superior, I'm putting myself on the line hoping it will be accepted. Do you see the difference? The superior has the right to, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And the bigger the gap, the more anxious I become about will it be accepted. So this scholar, Halbertal, is talking about that is a key aspect of sacrifice. It is not called matana, gift. It is called mincha, offering. Because it might not be accepted. And we tend to think of sacrificing. You were talking about language earlier that I sacrifice something. I give up something. What I didn't put together before I read this exactly before was you're not giving something up really. You're giving it back to the one who gave it to you. I never thought about that before. When I sacrifice... I'm not just giving something up. That's not the point. I'm offering it back to the one who gave it to me. So the king grants you an estate. (laughs) You want to give the king a gift. So you gather the finest of your wine that you made from the vineyard on your estate. That may or may not be accepted. You're really anxious that it be accepted and that it be pleasing, right? But you're, you're not just sacrificing something you have. You're giving back to the king who gave it to you in the first place. You see, there's more, there's more here. There's more layers of it that I don't think I've appreciated before until this. Who can take away that gift? That's exactly right. And if I expose myself, like here I'm offering you the wine, the king might say, this is the most disgusting thing I've t- and I gave you those vineyards. You know what? Let me open the record book and I think we're going to make some changes because Goldberg down the road 
makes superior wine and really should have those vineyards. Do you see the anxiety? The bigger the gap, the higher the anxiety that will what I offer be accepted. We have that in our liturgy. Yes. That our our meditations and our prayers be accepted. Right. So, So on page 11, I just explained page 10, in the human divine relationship, the divine privilege to reject is rooted in the fact that the sacrifice is actually an act of returning rather than giving. I'm returning something to, right, to the one who gave it to me. God is entitled as the one who gave the produce in the first place to refuse its return. All right. Um, then you're going to turn to page 15. The gift within the biblical tradition is not one of the functions of sacrifice. It is not a matana. It is not a present. It is the central category of sacrifice, but its meaning as a gift varies and is multi-layered. In its essence, as an offering as opposed to a gift, the sacrifice defies the common ethics of giving since its acceptance is not secured. Um, and so, uh, the whole ritual, right, is about successful transfer. The whole mechanism, all of this ritual is to assure that my offering is accepted, right? All right. So now, how do we see that show up? Yes. I have to say, according to halacha, every word out loud. That's what, that's how speed mumble davening comes into existence. You have to say every word loud enough that you can hear it. Not the person next to you. You have to be able to hear every single word of what you're supposed to pray. Right? That is adherence to ritual that makes that mincha acceptable. Makes it received, right? And then there's postures I have to go through, right? I have to stand here, sit there, bow here, three steps, three steps, right? There's all this ritual to ensure that my prayer is accepted. But just as the author here says that um, that the purpose of ritual is to get rid of the sort of the fatal flaw of the possibility of rejection, we hear in that ritual itself carries its own fatal flaw, which we hear about during the Yom Kippur service, where you have the prophet saying, is this the fast that I was looking for? Is this? Do you guys think that if you just do these rituals that you're going to make things... So work? that's the tension. That's the constant tension, right? So I, I want to get there um, from... And I promise I'm going to close... Um, Any change in the protocol might be lethal, like walking in a minefield. This shield comes at the expense of visibility. The one who is offering a sacrifice wishes to appear before God to be made visible and to join the gift cycle. And yet, being in the spotlight before power can be terrifying. So... So the whole ritual act, the whole sacrificial system, he's suggesting, 
is a shield so that I can approach the divine because I want to, but it's terrifying. I want to, but then I'm seen. Then if my wine is rejected, they could take the whole vineyard, right? Things get examined. When I come and stand before the great light, things get examined that might not go well for me. There's a, vul- there's a very, very anxious vulnerability in coming before the divine that this system provides right a shield and an, more of an assurance of an acceptance of the offering. Then, the, and then halacha around prayer, right, takes the place of that. That if you do all these things and you do it like this, right, then, then it's going to be good. Then it's going to be okay. If you dive in at Shachrit, and then you do Mincha, well, Mincha Mariv, because you don't want to come to Shul twice, so you do Shachrit, then Mincha Mariv. My grandfather davened in his living room. You know, you can daven by yourself. That's fine. But you, you had, because that if you do that system, then there's this assurance that things, you know, will be accepted, and, and it's all good. And the tension becomes, is that all it is? Because then it just becomes a formula. Then is it a formula with no real relation? And, and I think this is a dialectic and a, this is a tension that I feel like we don't, we don't have the one. The prophet is worried about, is this the fast that I want? Really? Where's the teeth? Right? You think God wants you to go through all these ritual things and, and you are corrupt behind the scenes? Really? I wish that that was my job, was to stand up and say, y'all think just because you come to services every day? And right, right, y'all think because of that, right? We don't have, we don't have mechanisms anymore for even feeling like we're trying to approach the divine. We're not even sure what the, do we believe in a divine, right? What's the point of that? We're also sure they're really, when we talk about it, but really, what do I really think, right? So there's so much of that right now that I feel like it's one of the places we are really missing important human ways of both coming before that which is way beyond our comprehension and shielding ourselves enough to, and going through enough ritual to be confident that it worked. Wait, where is that for us? Here, I believe, yes. I believe that happens here, 100%. Each one of you, every time you speak in here, is willing to be seen before the divine, is willing to have it opened, and that is a huge act of drawing close to each other, to the ultimate, to whatever we're here to explore. I believe that with my whole heart. Where, where is it for our community? Where, where is it past this room for us? Where, where are we even looking for it? Do we even want it? Do we think we need it? Right? These are the questions that, I, that keep some of us up at night, frankly. Um, and, and I include myself in this. I'm not saying I'm any different. I'm not davening in my living room. Shh, don't what, what, even for me, 
whose whole life is about this. Where, where do I have it? Where am I looking for it? Where am I really, you know, attached to some forms and ways that make me feel like, okay, whatever it is, and I don't know what it is, and I, I really don't know what it is, um, but it's okay. It's, a, it's accepted, right? I, we're good. Linda? In this conversation that you're having with us, a, a vision popped into my head. It was the first time I ever went to Israel, and I was on a plane. And there are people in little corners vomiting. <laughs> you were on El Al, right? I definitely <laughs> And I, I, got, I thought of it, and I hadn't thought about it in a long time until we um, just were talking about it now. And I'm thinking, are they really getting something out of that? What does it mean to what all of us are trying to think about? I don't know either, but it, I mean, it just seems odd to me then, and it still seems odd to me now. Because we don't have an attachment right. to a sense that that is efficacious. And that does something. Too. They do. Right. They have a deep attachment. And here's the thing. Even if it's just rote, there's an attachment to the idea that if I did it with fervor, right, or and we don't even have an attachment to doing it by rote. I'm not saying we should, you know, just have a bunch of stuff we do by rote. My, my point is, we don't have anything that we go, that doesn't work, this does. Right? Now, now each of us has things. We go for a walk in the woods. We go to the beach. Okay. But when we feel like it, when it's convenient, you know, it's... Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there isn't this sense of, oops, I got to do that now, right? Hang on, I'll be back. I got to go do this thing that is going to connect me just to what's so beyond me. Mm-hmm. David? Are you really saying that the dissolution of this is because we're no longer a God-based society? I think, yes, that's a big part of it. We live in a very secular right. world. Yes, I'm worried about that we've lost sancta. We've lost the idea of the sacred. That worries me a lot because we can do a lot of things because we think it's right and we're, you know, because you should or you shouldn't. For me, there's something lost when we say it's against the holy, right? It's against my call to live into the image of whatever we think it is that's beyond, right? Because you know that God matters. I worry very much. Yes, I worry very much that it doesn't matter yeah. to most right. Jews. Right. Yes, and to most Americans, I would say. But I most, but I don't care about most Americans. And, and everybody else that's going right, and there's there's times I feel much closer and in sync with progressive Christian clergy, right, and folk than I do lots of. Jewish people who look at me like, what do you do this for anyway? It's almost like with a little bit of disdain. Like, really? Services? Because, what, I'm going to go pray? Like, you know, and with this kind of, I don't know, and I'm, it's... I was raised with that. That was kind of a very intellectual, you know, we pay our dues, but we really don't. We don't do that stuff. We don't do that stuff. We don't do that, so... That, all that superstition and all that nonsense, right? And... And I worry. There are other attachments that I discovered when I went to Israel. That whole attachment to history 
to the story of our people, to the family I have there, to the people who are working hard, who have you know, come from all kinds of tragedies to renew their lives. Uh, it isn't God that matters so much to me, mm -hmm. but certainly there's something holy in that whole peoplehood um, so I 100% I am there. I'm a, I'm a holy roller reconstructionist that way. I truly am. My concern is I don't want to root my attachment to Israel. I need something that's not over there. I, I, right? I need something that's here. But we're here, and we came from there. I totally get it, and on that... Roots and all of that, I get it. I'm concerned for some American Jews, the only place they sense that and feel that is in Israel. That bothers me. I'm a true American, like Kaplan believed we walked fully in two civilizations. And I worry a little bit about where's our attachment to that stuff in, um, in our American identities without looking to Israel for it. But doesn't Kaplan, but Kaplan shows the way forward presumably by focusing on the centrality of, of the Jewish community as opposed to where the Jewish community is located. Correct. So what Reconstructionism does, he doesn't focus so much on the theology as the... But Kaplan never dreamed that when those Jews got together, they wouldn't be doing services. <laughs> And they wouldn't be in Sukkot together. Now they may transform those. He never dreamed that no longer would there be things like that that bound us together as a community through which to express whatever that's not necessarily theology. You see, you see what I'm saying? Right. The practices that, that were shared, he took that for granted. Right. It's like, and they're not here anymore. Right. He couldn't foresee the evolution. Mm -mm. Wayne? That's what you talked about the other night at the town hall in terms of what KI is and I think we have to figure out how to do that and what it is we're going to do as community that's going to pull us again into true relationship with each other and and by being in that relationship feel connected to that which is bigger and to have the transcendent right enter our relationships what is it what if it's not this, it's not this, it's not, you know, it, it's this for sure, but there's 30 of us, right? What, what, what is it? So that, and I think that is the big question of vision 2020 that we're trying to ask ourselves, which I think is magnificent that we're asking these questions. Let us continue to ask, please don't leave us alone <laughs> in asking. Um, cause we, we gotta, we gotta do it. Cause it is the only way that, um, that we will be able to keep all that we hold so precious and so dear and so um, central alive and working um, through our people. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.